0: Let's open our Bibles to First Thessalonians chapter 1. First Thessalonians chapter 1. We are answering the questions that we should have and do have from time to time. How can I know for sure that I'm saved? How do I know that I'm one of God's elect? How can I prove that my name is in the book of life? How can I help someone else find assurance? And of course, as I mentioned to you, I sometimes get scornful emails seeking to tease us about election by saying, how can you know that you're one of God's elect? Well, all we have to do is read the Bible. Because the Lord knew that we would want to know that, and so He's given our us answers. This morning I started off with First John chapter 5 and verse 13, which says, "These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. First John 5:13 chapter 3, chapter 4 and chapter 5 of first John primarily emphasize love of God and love of brethren more than faith. And so that's what John had written to them to convince them that they indeed had eternal life. Then we went to Second Peter chapter 1, and I'm repeating these verses because I want you to know them. I want you to know them for you, and I want you to know them for others. How do I know that I'm God's elect? Second Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. Verse 10 says, Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. There are things that we ought to do, not to earn our way to heaven, because that would violate the grace of God, but to show that we are God's elect. And that text tells us, you can make your election sure. Now, election has always been sure to God. He knows the names that he wrote in the book of life before the world began, and that is when the names were written in the book of life, because Revelation 13.8 and 17.8, along with every passage of Scripture that describes election and God's choice the New Testament, says it took place before the world began. You know, I used to sing a song when I was growing up as a boy, there's a new name written down in glory, but that is heresy. There's no new names written down in glory. They've been written down in glory from before the world began. But how do we know that our names have been written down? Give diligence. There is something we are supposed to be working hard at in 2 Peter 1.10. And it goes on to say we can make our election sure. And if we do these things, we'll never fall. And so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And there were eight things given in the context of verses five through eight. Beginning with faith, we are to add to our faith virtue and a virtue God knowledge and a knowledge godliness and a godliness temperance and a temperance patience and a patience brotherly kindness and a brotherly kindness charity. Those are eight things that you want to have in your life. Those are eight things that please God. Those are eight things that are like the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are eight things that will give you peace and happiness and joy and success in living. Those are eight things that are the evidence you're one of God's elect. The wicked do not do those things. And so those eight things separate us from them. So we come to a third passage. When someone writes me and asks, how can I know that I'm one of God's elect? And they mean it sincerely. They get a sincere answer. And this is one of the three places that we would go. First Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning at verse 2. The Bible wants to comfort you that you can know whether you're one of God's elect. Verse 2 of chapter 1 of First Thessalonians. Paul and Sylvanus and Timotheus say, We give thanks to God always for you all making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. Amen. Paul and Sylvanus and Timotheus knew that these Thessalonian saints were God's elect by three things. And these three things here are consistent with the eight things of Second Peter, and they are consistent with 1 John 3, 4, and 5. What are they? The work of faith. Oh, yes, Paul. The work of faith. It is not just enough to believe. The devils believe and tremble, but the devils don't bring forth good works. We want faith that works, faith and believe and trust, belief and trust in the Lord of heaven and in the Lord Jesus Christ that changes our lives, that brings forth fruitfulness and good works. The work of faith, then it says the labor of love, it's not enough to sing that we love Jesus It's not enough to say that we love each other by sending cards on birthdays or anniversaries, though that is appreciated. But it's the labor of love. It's when love results in actions. And it's not in word, but in deed and in truth. As I read to you from 1 John chapter 3, real love is a choice. It is not a force. The world thinks it's a force. That's why none of them love each other. It's all a bunch of lust out there. They wouldn't know love if it walked up to them and tapped them on the forehead and said, hello, I'm love. All they know is lust. They don't know love the way the Bible describes love. Love causes a man to lay down his life for his enemies. Lust causes a person to do whatever they feel like, and when they're not happy getting enough out of another person, then they leave and go find someone else they can get something out of. That's just lust. Love is a choice, and here is a choice, the labor of love. It's to love others and to labor for them, to do things for them. And I had an example during our announcements in this second service in which I commended a young man in our church that showed a great deal in the way of labor of love, proving that he's one of God's elect, because he did it for a brother in Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ is going to acknowledge in the great day of judgment when the righteous say, Lord, when did we ever visit you? When did we ever feed you? When did we ever clothe you? And he'll say, when you did it to the least of one of these, my brethren. That is the evidence of eternal life. Notice, when Jesus Christ separated all men to the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left hand, He did not say, sheep on my right hand, thank you for inviting me into your heart. There's nothing like that in Matthew 25. Really, there's nothing like that anywhere, because that's only mentioned in Revelation 3.20, and that's not even talking about eternal life. It's talking about a church needing fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But there we have it, the labor of love. And it goes on to say, the patience of hope. Many Christians will say, I have hope that Jesus is coming back and I'm going to go to heaven. But the real evidence of a Christian, the real evidence of salvation, the evidence of election is the patience of hope, where patience is the cheerful enduring of negative events. Patience of hope. If, if we believe that our names are written in heaven, if we believe that Jesus is coming back for us, if we believe that Jesus is going to burn up this earth with fervent heat and melt all the elements, according to 2 Peter chapter 3, if we believe that we are joint heirs with Christ, if we believe that He is going to lift the bondage of corruption off this planet so that the planet can enjoy the liberty of the children of God, if we believe those things, that is our hope, and that hope should cause the negative events of this life to pretty much disappear, to pretty much disappear. So it's patience of hope. So when we see a person and you can look for these things in your life, do I have a work of faith? Has my faith in Jesus Christ changed my life? Do I have a labor of love? Do I love the brethren so that I labor for them? I do things for them. I let them interrupt my schedule. I go out of my way. I show initiation. I spend money. I invest emotion, labor of love, and patience of hope. I cheerfully endure negative events. I praise the Lord. I can say with Job, The Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God. There are three passages you want to know for you. There are three passages you want to know for others. Because when some people hear about the doctrine of election, they want to know, well, how can I know that I'm one of God's elect? Well, that's why he wrote these passages. He wants us to know that we can know that we're elect. Please remember that as we look at the Bible, especially today, we want to think about it as a love letter from Almighty God and our Heavenly Father telling us, That there are certain things that we should do in different parts of our lives because they work. Because they will bless us. Because they will help us have a satisfying and fulfilling life. Because they glorify Him. Because they are the evidence of eternal life. So that when you read the commandments of God, you shouldn't look at thou shalt or thou shalt not as bad words, bad phrases, a bad sentence. It's for our good. It's for His glory, and it's for the evidence of eternal life. That is just win on every angle. 1 Thessalonians, I hope you'll remember it. Verses 2-4, 2 through four, Second Peter 1, 5-11, 1 John, uh, three whole chapters there. 1 John 3, 4, and 5 are all wonderful. I hope that I comforted some of you that have grown up in Christian homes. And so there hasn't necessarily been a dramatic, emotional, earth-shaking event in your conversion that's not evidence of anything good or bad. The evidence is, have you attended unto the words spoken from the Bible? Do you study the Scriptures and believe as a result? Do you find Christ precious? And do you add to your faith virtue, knowledge, and so forth from Second Peter? Since I am off schedule, let's just go to our next point here and see if God will bless us. Salvation, eternal life, is certain. It's always been certain. The Bible doesn't teach anything about God making eternal life possible. The Bible teaches God giving eternal life as a gift to those that the Father gave to the Lord Jesus Christ, and He in turn gives them eternal life. And it's helpful to our assurance to remember that, that salvation is not a maybe proposition, because that gets scary. When eternal life is left up to us, when eternal life is left up to our decision, we know that we are so varying and weak in our faith that we can't put much hope in it. You know, I could ask, how many of you former Arminians, or I should say, of you former Arminians, how many times did you invite Jesus into your heart in order to be saved to get assurance? You know, if the question was asked, if it's between zero and 50, my hand wouldn't go up. Why wouldn't my hand go up? Because I never invited Jesus into my heart, or it's above 50? If it was 50 to 100, my hand still wouldn't go up. I don't even know where I'd put my hand up. But it's hundreds. Every time we sang a good song, every time I had to go to a hospital with my father, or a funeral with my father, I'd do it again, just to make sure. Because after all, if the first time was at three, and after all, if it's not described in the Bible as any such thing, saving a person then there's not very much hope that I could put in it. When I was at Bob Jones University, I came to a realization from Revelation chapter 20, and because of that song I had learned as a child that there's a new name written down in glory, and because my faith did not result in a changed life all the time, I knew that my belief had not caused God, this is how I worded it to myself, I know that God has not bent over in his throne to write my name in the book of life. I knew that I had not done anything worthy of that. So there was this constant lack of assurance until, by the grace of God, I was shown the truth of the sovereign grace of God in salvation and realized that God has had a people chosen before the world began and He sent Jesus Christ to die for them and Jesus Christ would not lose a single one of them. The great God has saved a certain number of people infallibly by His own will and power through Jesus Christ to an eternity in heaven with God, leaving others to the just condemnation of their sins and an eternity in hell with the devil and his angels. Today, to utter a sentence like that sounds too harsh, too extreme, and unheard of. All you've got to do is pick up some of the old confessions of faith and know that all our Baptist brethren in days that have gone before us believed exactly that. It's called the London Confession of Faith. 1644, 1646, 1689, the Philadelphia Confession of Faith, 1742, they all believed those things stated just like that. That there is a number that God has chosen to save that is invariable. It cannot be added to it, cannot be taken away from, just as the Bible teaches. And so once you realize that salvation is certain... And it's based on a plan of God, not a possibility. But it's based on a gift of God, not an offer. Salvation isn't offered. Salvation is given. And once it's given, it changes our lives. And then we respond with the gift that's been given by believing the gospel. By being baptized in Jesus' name. By repenting of our sins. By bringing forth good works. The Bible puts it in Philippians 2, 12 and 13 so well, God hath worked in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure, and we should work out that salvation with fear and trembling. God's worked it in because it's His choice. He has saved us. Praise His glorious name. And we are supposed to be working that salvation out. Let's look at a few verses just to remind ourselves of the certainty of salvation for His people. Matthew chapter 1 has the angel speaking to Joseph who was concerned because his espoused wife, his engaged Mary, had turned up pregnant by the power of God. And the angel told Joseph that what she had in her was conceived in her of the Holy Ghost in verse 20. And he went on to say this in verse 21, And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. There are three shells in this verse, and we know that they've all been fulfilled. Mary brought forth a son. Joseph called his name Jesus. He, the Lord Jesus, saved his people from their sins. His people. He had a people that were given to him by God, and he saved them. Look at John chapter 6. These are verses that are good for our comfort because it reminds us that salvation isn't a maybe possibility. It is a certain gift and predestinated purpose of Almighty God. John chapter 6 and verse 38, Jesus said, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of Him that sent me. And this is, is the Father's will, which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And amen. amen. And if we go on and read in verses 39 and 40, any belief that occurs on our part is a result of God giving us to Christ, and of Christ giving us eternal life, and of Jesus saying, I will not lose one of them. There is so much going on in the religious world today and it's being preached so in so many places that Jesus isn't going to save most of those he died for. But the Bible says Jesus is going to save every single one God gave him to save. And if you bring forth the evidence, you're in that certain number, not in that possible number. And Lord, we want full assurance for our faith. Look at chapter 17 of this same book. John 17, verses 2 and 3. This is Jesus Christ's high priestly prayer. Before He went to the cross, He said in verse 1, Father, the hour is come. Glorify Thy Son, that Thy Son also may glorify Thee. As Thou hast given Him power over all flesh, that He should give eternal life to as many As thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Notice, Jesus said that God had given him power over all flesh, all men, that he, the Lord Jesus, should give eternal life to as many as God had given him. Out of that human race, God had given some to the Lord Jesus Christ and to them, the Lord Jesus Christ gave eternal life. Totally consistent with John chapter 6 that He wouldn't lose a single one. And notice, this is life eternal that they might know. God gives eternal life for us to know Him. Until we have eternal life, it is impossible to know God. Because the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Until we have a spiritual new man, by the gift of eternal life, we cannot know God. We refuse to know Him. But God changes all of that. So, that if you know God, love God, and rejoice in singing, like we did just a few minutes ago, it's proof that you have been given eternal life and if you have been given eternal life then God gave you to Christ you're his elect right. by backing through John 17:1 through 3 do you know God do you know the Lord Jesus Christ do you consider him precious it's the evidence of eternal life right. because eternal life was given that we might know it's not that we know that we might get eternal life That's reversing what the Bible teaches about the depravity and wickedness and rebellion of the human heart. God changes our heart and that causes us to want to know God and His Son, Jesus Christ. Oh, you know that we could just keep going on and I could keep pulling from this big pile of verses I have here in my notes. But let's go to another point. Let's go to the fact that what I just showed from John chapter 6, that not a single one will be lost. Let's turn back to John chapter 10, where it speaks of the good shepherd and his sheep. Now throughout this chapter, it says that the Lord Jesus laid down His life for the sheep. Since the Bible describes sheep and goats, and in this very passage, He's going to tell the Jews, ye are not of my sheep. Jesus did not lay down His life for them. Let's come to verse 26. But ye believe not, because... Ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. As he's been saying through the previous chapters, and especially this chapter. You know, in younger days, I thought that if you wanted to be one of Jesus' sheep, then you needed to believe. But Jesus taught it the opposite of that. Jesus taught it that you have to be one of his sheep in order to believe. And that makes sense with the rest of Scripture and everything that we understand about eternal life. It's a certainty. And once it's a certainty, all we need to look for in thanksgiving to God is the evidence that he's laid out for us to look for. John ten twenty six. But ye believe not because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Now watch in verse 29. My Father which gave them me is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. So Jesus is telling the Jews. My Father gave me the sheep for which I will die. And I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. It's all hinging on God gave them to me. But ye are not of my sheep. God did not give those Jews that Jesus addressed to Christ to save. Jesus will save every single one of them. They will not perish. Look at Hebrews. There are so many places we could go. Look at Hebrews chapter two. Thank you, Lord, for making it so plain and filled with so much comfort for us. In Hebrews chapter two, we have the words of the Lord Jesus Christ addressing God the Father about you and me. He's not ashamed to call us brethren. And he says in verse 13, I will put my trust in Him, that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. When we get to heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to present us to the Father and He's going to look at the multitude of the redeemed family of God, chosen without number, out of every tribe, tongue, language, and people, and say, behold, I and the children which Thou hast given me. It's not, behold, I and the children which gave themselves to me. It's I and the children which thou hast given me. There's so much, it's a wonderful little phrase there, taken from the Old Testament, but applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19 says, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, Having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are His. Amen. As Galatians 4.9 tells us, it is not that you know the Lord. Remember, that's a result of salvation. What's the cause of salvation? That God knows you. What's the acceptance that's taught in the Bible? And it's not accepting Jesus as your Savior. That's not taught in the Bible. There's no verse that says that. It's God... Accepting us in Christ. Ephesians 1.6 He hath made us accepted. When the word accepted is used, that's a passive voice verb, meaning we're being accepted by someone else. We're not doing the accepting. God's accepting us through Christ. Him knowing us is more important than us knowing Him. Because when we get before the Lord, we don't want to hear the words, I never knew you. See, the words involved are not whether we know Him or not. It's whether He knows us or not. And who does He know, according to Matthew 7, where those words are uttered? Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. As we obey the gospel, as we obey the commandments given to us in the Word of God, we show that we are doing the will of our Father in heaven. And we show that He knows us and He has given us eternal life. And so this text can say in 2 Timothy 2.19 that, that though the faith of some is overthrown in verse 18, false teachers do overthrow the faith of God's people from time to time. Remember, Paul told Timothy, take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in those two things. For in so doing, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. Now see, Timothy and his church members were already saved, but they could lose their conversion. They could lose their proper understanding of the doctrine of God. And this 18th verse says, Who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. There were some children of God in the days of the New Testament they were being taught by false teachers that the resurrection was past. Some were teaching that there was no resurrection of the body. In Corinth, 1 Corinthians and chapter 15. But notice, though their faith is overthrown, God's knowledge of them in the book of life is not overthrown at all. So it says in 2 Timothy 2.19, nevertheless, in spite of their faith being overthrown, the foundation of God. And what is the foundation of God? the solidity, the stability, the perpetuity of our faith or of His. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure. The Lord knoweth them that are His. And brethren... This is what we believe. And this is just a little sampling of a few scriptures to remind us that when we're asking about the assurance of eternal life, we want to remember the doctrine of salvation is by a plan. It is by a purpose. And it is fulfilled. And that a single one is lost. And the Lord knoweth those that are His no matter what happens to them. Because false teachers do lead God's children astray. It is hard to imagine... That there is a child of God sitting in Joel Osteen's Coliseum because of the tripe that he... Can I use the word preach and you'll understand that I don't mean preach, even if I say preach? But you know what? There are children of God sitting in that assembly who are being fed his little prosperity 20-minute memorized sermonettes every Sunday and not having the joy of rejoicing in a God that reigns Do you think Joel's going to get up and cut loose with Psalm 99? The Lord reigneth. Not a chance. Do you think he's going to get up and talk about the holiness of God? Not a chance. But the Lord knoweth them that are His. And that's what counts. Thank you, Lord. And we could look at so many other places. Is there anything that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? Nothing. Nothing neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature and it just goes on can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Many are going to be separated from God. Many are going to be separated from His love because Jesus is going to say, I never knew you, but everyone that God loved will be in heaven because nothing can separate us from the love of God. Look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 32. The certainty of your salvation. Part of the assurance of salvation comes from its certainty. Listen. All my life and so many more beside me have been raised to believe that God loves everyone equally. God loves everyone equally. Jesus died for all the sins of all men equally. The Holy Spirit does whatever he does for all men in their scheme, but the vast majority end up in hell. That doesn't say much for God's love, Christ's death, or the Spirit's work. And so there isn't much assurance in that doctrine of salvation. That is not the doctrine of the Bible. God has saved a particular people and Jesus won't lose a single one of them and they'll all be presented to God. Verse 32 is, is one of the verses that we want to remember. He that spared not his own son. Romans 8, 32. But delivered him up for us all. Us all. Who's he talking about? This isn't the brothels at Rome. This is the church at Rome that he's addressing. And it's been churches that have read the book of Romans ever since. He delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? That's a question mark. It's a rhetorical question. You should know the answer. How shall he? It's impossible. It's impossible for God to have given his son for his elect and not have God the Father also give every other spiritual blessing and thing that we need in order to be fully secured in heaven. They have to go together because it's arguing from the greater to the lesser. The greatest gift that God could give is His Son. The lesser things are the other things like justification and eternal heaven and riches and rewards and reigning upon the earth with Christ. Everything has to come to every one of God's elect if He gave His Son for them. Look at verse 34 while we're here. This is often overlooked, but you know that I remind you of it from time to time. Who is he that condemneth? Let's get verse 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Because of the certainty of everything God's going to do for his elect, no one can lay anything to their charge. It is God that justifieth. God takes care of all the justification of sinners through the death of Christ on the cross because justification is a legal transaction in the Godhead. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, and remember, I love to point these words out, yea rather, it is Christ that died, yea rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. The Lord Jesus Christ is committed to us. Hebrews 7.22 would call him our surety. He is the guarantor of eternal life. He has not only died for us, He has not only been raised for us, He has not only ascended for us, He is in heaven interceding for us, and He is able to save to the uttermost. Thank you, Lord. Salvation is certain. Let me take a few minutes in closing here and go through some evidence. Evidence is defined in the Bible. The evidence of eternal life and which is what should concern us at this moment. We have just considered some verses from Matthew 1, 21, that he shall save his people from their sins, that Jesus Christ will give eternal life to everyone the Father gave him, that some are his sheep and some are not his sheep. The Lord knoweth those that are his. Those verses that we've looked at, we want to ask now, how can I know that I'm one of his sheep? How can I know that I'm one of his people? How can I know that I'm one of his elect? How can I know that I'm known by God? And the number of scriptures in the Bible are very long. But let me quickly share a few with you. And share them this way with an either-or proposition to you. Look at Psalm 10.4. Now for those of you that have good memories and know that I preached something similar to this nine years ago, it was entitled... No fine line. Because the difference between the righteous and the wicked is no fine line. It is a great gulf. Now hold on. The difference between a carnal Christian and the wicked is a fine line. It's so fine, you can't tell. That is why the tares are allowed to grow up with the wheat because some wheat look too much like tares. Tares do not look like wheat. Go read the parable. Some wheat, by being carnal Christians, start looking like tares. And the only one that can see that fine line is the God in heaven. And that's why I preach, if you're not bringing forth the good works described in the Bible, then you're tear. Because that's all we can see. That's what we're supposed to go by watch the just i have a long long list that would take us from now until 5 so i'm just going to give you a few psalm 10:4 the wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek after god god is not in all his thoughts this is taught in other places as well there is not a single human being that has ever or ever will seek god psalm 14 psalm 53 Romans chapter three and Psalm 10 verse four right here. The wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek after God. Either, here, here we go. Either you think sincerely about God and about pleasing him or he never enters your mind in a productive, fruitful, God honoring way. Either. Do you fit the description of that verse? Or do you think about God? You say, it can't be that easy. It is that easy. Because the wicked, through the pride of his heart, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. Why are you here today? Are you here today because you have to be? If you're here today because you have to be, and that's the only reason you're here, then you're probably on your way to hell. And that's where you deserve to go. But if you're here today because you do think about God, and you do love God, and you want to love Him more, and you want to be in His worship, then you've just separated yourselves from the wicked. What made that change in you? You didn't make that change in you, because there's no man that can make that change, nor will make that change, because of human... It's a P word. Pride. We will not seek God. Like Adam our father, we will go hide in the trees of the garden, rather than running to God, and confessing our wicked rebellion against Him. So what's made that difference? Either or. Either you think sincerely about God and pleasing Him, or He never enters your mind any fruitful, productive way of changing your life. Praise the Lord. That's pretty easy, isn't it? It's it's easy. God's made a change in you. This is how we know. Look at uh, Psalm 15. This is just, I wish this psalm was preached a few more times than it is. We know it, but others need to hear it. Watch this psalm. It's asking the questions that we're asking today in the first verse. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? Lord, who's saved? Who gets to spend eternity with you? Well, here comes the answer. He that walketh uprightly, and worketh righteousness, and speaketh the truth in his heart. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor, in whose eyes a vile person is contemned, but he honoreth them that fear the Lord. He that sweareth to his own hurt, and changeth not. He that putteth not out his money to usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. This is the character of a righteous man. This is a description of how you can know you have eternal life. God has blessed us to understand the sovereignty of God in salvation. Remember, we just sang a song a few minutes ago written by a Methodist woman, a very rich woman in England who established over 50 chapels for Methodist preachers to learn about election and predestination. It was number 379 that we sang and we ended up singing that when we're in heaven, there's going to be shouts of sovereign grace because the Lord has shown us how he is exalted as the one that makes the choice. He's the one that determines. He's the one who has the purpose that saves his people. And yet look at what we're reading. We read, we see both because both are in the Bible. God does the saving. We are responsible for raising the evidence that we're saved. How can we know that we're saved when God does it all and we can't see the book of life? By living like the people whose names are in the book of life. And here we just had a description. It's a very simple psalm. I hope everybody can figure this one out. There's questions in verse 1. The answer is in verses 2 through the first half of verse 5. And then there's a summary at the end of verse 5. Are these words familiar at all? He that doeth these things shall never be moved. What, what would you put down as a cross reference here? Second Peter chapter one and verse 10. He that doeth these things shall never fall. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. It's the same because it's the character of the righteous. When we show the character of God coming through our lives, the character of the Lord Jesus Christ coming through our lives, that is the evidence of eternal life. You'll never be moved because you're looking like God and you're looking like Christ. Just to say that you believed 30 years ago in some evangelistic meeting with Billy Graham, big deal. Where is that in the Bible? This is what's in the Bible. This is the Bible. Faith without works is dead. Faith without works is worthless. A decision of faith without godliness following is worthless. Either or. Either you have spiritual conviction to do right in order to please God, or you don't. Either you're in Psalm 15, or you're not. Does Psalm 15 look terrible to you? Do you love despising vile people? Who break God's commandments. Do you love those people that fear the Lord? Is that hard for you? Or is that just second nature to you now? Amen. Guess what? That's the evidence of eternal life. Look at Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Oh Lord. You can make your calling and election. Sure. Certain. Certain. He that doeth these things shall never fall. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. Isn't it wonderful what God's shown us? You know, some, church, some churches emphasize the sovereignty of God and they kind of neglect the duty of man. Some exalt the duty of man and kind of neglect the sovereignty of God. And the Lord's shown us God does all the saving of a particular people that He chose in Christ before the world began, writing their names in the book of life. But the only way we can know that we're part of that number is to bring forth good works of holiness and righteousness. That is sweet! Lord! They consider that the Gordian knot of theology. No one's able to solve it. But we, like Alexander the Great, approach the Gordian knot with our 66-inch blade. And do you know what Alexander the Great did when he found that revered Gordian knot? And they said, said, can the great Alexander from Macedonia solve the Gordian knot? He looked at it for a couple of seconds, pulled his 66-inch blade out, and chopped it in half. That ought to give you goosebumps. (laughs) That idiots in this world would give a man like Alexander the Great a knot and say, Can you solve this? And he cut it in half. Do you know what knot they give us? How can you reconcile the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man? Well, we just did. Amen. And it's so simple. And we exalt God as high as he can possibly be exalted, and we exalt our responsibility to live fruitful and godless, I mean fruitless, fruitful and godly lives as much as anything isn't that wonderful yes look at Matthew chapter 7 sermon on the mount three chapters long the lord jesus christ is bringing it to a conclusion and here's what he says in verse 24 therefore now he has just dealt with some men that are going to be that are going to hear the words i never knew you depart from me ye that work iniquity so what's the cure here's the cure which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. The winds and storm and judgment and waves of this passage is the judgment day of Christ. Because that is what is in the context from verses 21 through 23. If you keep the sayings, of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, then your house is built upon a rock because you have the rock of Christ's sayings as the evidence you are one of His. If you don't keep these sayings, then you do not have that evidence. Your house is built upon sand, and in the great day of judgment, when the storm of judgment blows against your house, the fall of it will be great. Jesus started this sermon off with these words, Accept your righteousness. Exceed. And he's not talking about being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He's talking about your righteousness. If your righteousness does not exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. He starts that way. He concludes this way whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them. See, it's not the legal righteousness of Christ in this context. It's the practical righteousness of Christ by our obedience. So the question is, either you have built your house upon a rock or you have built your house, your life, upon the sand. How can you know? Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Do you delight in the things taught there and do you practice them in your life? And so a weak, scared hand comes up and says, but I don't always do it perfectly. What's the cure for that? To repent and to confess. And He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to let us keep right on going. Both of which the wicked would never do. The wicked don't even try to keep them. And when the wicked fail, they don't have any remorse to repent and turn their lives around and start doing them again. And so we just continue to prove, even while we fail, that we're the Lord's. Isn't that, that's, this isn't too hard, is it? It should be comforting. Either or. I've got another 75 of them, but it's, it's time. There will be an outline. I want to comfort your souls. So, eternal life is a certain purpose of the grace of God given us in Christ before the world began. All men, when God looked down upon them through time, they were all rebels. They all went astray. There was none that understood. There was none that seeketh after God. Psalm 14, Psalm 53, Romans 3. So he made the difference. He chose us to salvation through Jesus Christ. He regenerated us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have that new man within us by the choice of God. Jesus said, the wind bloweth where it listeth. Do you know what that means? The wind blows wherever it wants to. The wind bloweth where it listeth. And no man knoweth from where it goeth and whence it cometh. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. John chapter 3 and verse 8. John chapter 1 and verse 13 tells us how we're born again. Which were born, not of blood, it has nothing to do with race, nor of the will of man, it has nothing to do with your will, nor of the will of the flesh, it has nothing to do with your will, the will of man being, God, parents, or anyone else, doing it on your behalf. Which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. As he chooses... God chooses people in Christ. God regenerates them by the power of the Holy Spirit. Then we hear the gospel and we have the ability and we have the desire to respond because God has worked in us both to will and to do of His good pleasure. And as we do His good pleasure we please Him we reap the benefits of living a successful pleasant functional life and we have the evidence of eternal life. It is when And win and win and win again to do it the Lord's way. And that is to read these passages like the Sermon on the Mount, Second Peter chapter one, first Thessalonians, Psalm fifteen, wherever we go, and to want to keep those things, and they should be the desire of our hearts. Is it the desire of your heart today to please the Lord Jesus Christ by living according to his commandments? His commandments are not grievous. First John chapter 5. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. But it's by doing the will of our Father that will stand us in the best stead. It is even put this way in the Bible. And you've heard this from me before, but understand, 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul told Timothy to tell the rich not to trust in their riches, but in the living God who giveth us richly all things to enjoy and that they be ready to distribute, willing to communicate the rich should be willing to give financial assets to the poor that they may lay up in store a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. This is what the Bible teaches. See, that is a changed life. When you find a rich man that wants to give away his riches like Zacchaeus to the poor... Because they're Christ, you have a man that has a foundation against the time to come when he meets the Lord Jesus Christ. He is laying hold of eternal life. You know, the Arminians, they don't even know what to do with a passage like that. Because they think the only foundation is inviting Jesus into your heart. Which is Revelation 3.20 used out of context and nowhere else even implied in the Word of God. The real evidence of eternal life is a changed life. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That is the evidence of eternal life. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.